I'm Jill Anderson. I'm the Senior Vice President of Strategic Planning and Power Supply at Southern California Edison. One thing that really struck me about this Future of Work event was how similar the challenges are that we're facing across different industries. So we heard from healthcare, I represent an energy company, we heard from a technology company, and we're all facing some of the similar challenges as we look forward to what we need in the future workforce. I'm very hopeful that with all of the incredible challenges that are ahead of us, you know, in my area, for example, we focus on climate change, which is one of the biggest problems yes. that we need to solve. I'm so hopeful coming to events like this. The passion that we have today, both among the educators and the people who are just entering the workforce, that there really should be no challenge out there that's too great for us to solve. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing, and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo. And this is The Future of Work. Join us for part one of this exploratory conversation about emerging workforce trends and industry on a panel with leaders such as Jill Anderson, Senior Vice President of Strategic Planning and Power Supply at Southern California Edison, and Abigail Sanchez, Vice President of Parsons, just to name a couple. It was moderated by Cliff Daniels, Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer of Methodist Hospital of Southern California, and it all took place at the Future of Work event in November of 2019 at Pasadena City College. Let's get started. I'm very excited to bring to the podium a great friend of PCC, Mr. Cliff Daniels, Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer for Methodist Hospital of Southern California, who will be monitoring today's dynamic morning panel called Emerging Workforce Trends in Industry. Please help me welcome Cliff Daniels. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see everyone here. I am humbled that uh, Salvatrice and Jesse asked me to moderate this panel of real experts in the workplace and, and uh, identifiers of workforce needs today. Hopefully, we'll make this fun and informative. And So with that, let me introduce the panel, have them all come up here and take seats, and then we'll have them each introduce themselves. So today, we have some representatives and senior leaders from big, large companies and some educators here in Southern California. And if you could, 
Talk about, after you introduce yourselves, the two greatest workforce needs that you see in your particular organizations. And then we'll get on to some questions. Good morning. My name is Abigail Sanchez. I'm Vice President and Director of Local and State Government Affairs. The two biggest needs that we see are in the intelligence, cybersecurity, and data analytics area. And the other is going to be in construction and uh, vocational training for that field. Good morning. My name is Lindsay Heiser. I'm the director of the LA Tech Talent Pipeline Program at the Los Angeles Area Chamber of Commerce. Um, really a big piece of workforce needs is being around training, especially around soft skills, and then also being able to provide sustaining wages for employees. Hi, good morning. I'm Jill Anderson with Southern California Edison. For us, I think that there are so many needs around the workforce of the future, but definitely a big need is going to be around continuing to pack the pipeline in science and technology fields so that that is not only robust with people's skills, but also diversity in that pipeline. And my name is Don Bradburn. I'm the Director of Workforce Planning and Development for Kaiser Permanente Southern California. I'd say our two greatest challenges are ensuring that we have a culturally competent workforce that reflects our members, uh, as well as a digitally fluent yet empathetic workforce. Excellent. All right, let's jump into it here. So in our audience today, we have uh, titans of industry and electeds and a lot of esteemed educators. So let's talk with Jill first. So Jill, what can a college or a university do to best prepare a potential a student and potential employee for a long-term career at Edison? So we're very interested in growing the pipeline of talent that could come into Edison. We employ about 12,000 people across Southern California. We hire 2,200 people a year. Uh, so that's a significant amount of opportunities ranging from the field, engineering degrees, leadership backgrounds. And so what's important to us, I think, is that People are coming into job interviews and looking at opportunities very much prepared for what we're looking for for that role. So it might be uh, in the field, for example, you know, we have minimum qualifications, GED, uh, high school diploma, but also there are physical requirements all the way to an engineering degree where you have an opportunity to maybe intern with us and get some experience specific to the field that we're in charge of, whether that's clean energy or infrastructure development and construction. So I think it's a wide range of opportunities, but what we really need to see is that candidates are coming with some preparation for what we're looking for. So Don, I have a particular interest in healthcare. What would an ideally prepared college grad look like for a long-term career at Kaiser? I, I think the person has to be resilient and they have to be dedicated to healthcare. And I think what I always say is we have to kind of flip everything on its, on its head. And so we don't necessarily need to have like a nurse or a doctor who's just churned out right away. If you can send us a great, from a career technical education, MA, who is committed to healthcare, but at their point in time in life, all they can do is really the career technical education, we can help foster growth throughout that period. So I want somebody who is committed to the long haul. And what I mean by that is a CNA or an MA who wants to maybe be an RN one day and then can, throughout their journey on their career, continue to come back and refine their skills. And for two reasons. In healthcare, our science, pharmace pharmaceuticals, everything are changing so rapidly. It's kind of hard to front end 
all the education up front because a lot of what they learn in that maybe two to four years could be antiquated in two to four years. And so it's got to be a lifelong journey of learning to kind of trail that career path that they're on. It's not a one and done anymore. So Assemblyman Holden and Jorge address this a little bit um, with respect to keeping people that are hired in at the lower rungs of, of skill sets and employment and having them sit there forever or growing within an organization and achieving higher aspirations or greater skill sets. Are there formal programs at place in Kaiser to help uh, employees grow within their career paths in, within the organization? Yeah. So, you know, we often want to have partners with educational providers to, to do that. But recently we launched a sterile processing apprenticeship which essentially took our housekeeping and EVS attendants and trained them to become sterile processing techs. And so what does that mean in, in real terms? Because I'm talking about job titles that people may or may not be familiar with. A, a housekeeper comes in, and after about 10 or 15 years, they may be making at Kaiser about $22 an hour. For those staff who have been with us for 10 or 15 years, you know, they took the job they could at the time that they met the qualifications for. It didn't mean that they didn't want to be anything more. And so what this apprenticeship did was took dedicated employees, we put them through the required training to get their certifications, and on the back end, we're about to graduate the first cohort, and most of them are receiving anywhere between 2 and $5 an hour job, hour increase in their wage. It's noticeable. You know, for the one that's getting a, 10, a $5 an hour, that's like $10,000 a year, about four or $500 a paycheck. But we don't want it to stop there, because then we build an apprenticeship for surgical techs. So... Many people see a housekeeper, and it always stuck with me from years in the hospital where I was talking to some EVS employees, and one of them said, but I'm just a housekeeper. And that is a point where you're not. You're our front line on infection control. And it's, a, it's how they see themselves, and it's how we have to see them. In healthcare, it's a career path. They are the housekeeper who's the front line defense for infections, but they can sanitize a room, they can sanitize equipment for procedures, and they can then grow to become a surge tech, which is the person who's going to make sure all the instruments are laid out the way they need to be when the surgery starts. And it's a full path. And that other one then from a sterile processing to a surgical tech is at about another $5 an hour increase. So it's how we lift our line staff into clinical roles. You know, actually, that reminds me of a story that uh, it's a famous, I don't know if it's urban legend, I think it's true, that uh, years ago, oh my gosh, probably almost 60 years ago now, 55 years ago, there's a story that uh, President Kennedy, when he was touring the Johnson, well, it wasn't the Johnson Space Center, the Houston Space Center, Mission Control in Houston, was walking around and came across a janitor who was literally emptying a wastebasket. And uh, it, it really describes the culture of what went on at NASA at the time when allegedly President Kennedy asked the janitor what he did there. And his answer was, I helped send men to the moon. And how we align culture of an organization with employees having the same sense of, uh, of uh, commitment and dedication is really a challenge today. So, you know, I think those internal programs are really important. Jill, does Edison have similar types of programs that help employees grow from lower wage positions to higher level positions? Absolutely. I think it's very important for us that people feel like they have a career path. We bring uh, people from the field into supervision. In fact, that's the number one pipeline for us for people to be field supervisors are people who are journeyman linemen first. Of all the promotions that we do into management, about 80% of those are internal. We overall do about 40% of our hiring is external, but we try to weight internal experience 
very highly when we're bringing people into management. And I think that's very important, you know, talking about, you know, the Kaiser parallel on, on helping the patients. For us, our vision is to help, you know, decarbonize our economy and build a clean energy future. And really, it's every single one of those 12,000 employees who are working on that and helping people tie their everyday job to how are we helping clean the environment and make the world a healthier place for all of our children, I think is really helping to retain and attract new talent uh, to what otherwise maybe the utility industry hasn't always been the sexiest choice out of, out of college, um, but we're trying to change that. So I haven't forgot you ladies at the end. Abigail, how about you at Parsons? How do you align corporate culture with career aspirations and helping people grow? Well, we have changed our HR department to become the people, people department. So it's a people department and to take a new approach and really finding where people are, where they want to be. You may be an entry level engineer, but you aspire to be a project manager. So we have accelerated management programs and formal training, as well as here's a book for you and for your students and others. It's called FYI for your improvement. So we're using that internally at Parsons now as a Bible or of sorts and different skills, soft skills in particular, on how you can, you know, be or look at where you are talented, maybe less talented, and where you can improve. And that's becoming our, our common language in terms of how we want to develop and taking a very active role in our independent development plan and checking in with the people department as well as our supervisors. And also encouraging people to just self-identify if there's something that you're interested in participating in. I mean, you can't just go be a cybersecurity engineer if you don't have that training, but you can be trained and you can make that transition. So a culture of encouraging speak up, a culture of get involved and continue to learn. So along those lines, let's talk a little bit about technology, both social and business technology. We find that plays a more pervasive and necessary role in our lives every day. Lindsay, how do you see the resources that are available today in providing adequately trained, technically skilled, again, both social technology and business technology, students coming out and getting ready for the workplace? I think it's great because sitting here listening to my colleagues here on the panel is that very much of the work that we're doing is trying to prepare job seekers to be able to walk into these roles at these various companies. And so within our role, we are leveraging technology and also partnering with the tech ecosystem here in the greater Los Angeles area to prepare job seekers for roles. And so in doing that, we listen to companies and a lot of times they are, we're connecting with people who are in the people department now because we all know that it is the talent that really is able to drive these companies forward. And and listening, whether it's to HR recruiters or heads of diversity and inclusion, a lot of them are talking about the fact of being able to have those soft skills and and that the technical needs, whether it's through an apprenticeship program or it's being able to move within the company, can be taught, but it's those soft skills to kind of get them with some technical skills to that interview and then into the position. We work with all 19 community colleges here in the greater LA area. 
And one of the things that we've recently done is partnered with Cornerstone On Demand. Some of you may be using them actually within your companies, but we've more recently launched what's called Workforce Ready. It's an online platform to be able to help support job seekers with those soft skills that they can access directly from their mobile or from a computer to help them prepare. And so it's everything from time management, it's email communication, how to address a problem should you be having an issue or a challenge with your manager during your internship or apprenticeship. So really being able to leverage the tech industry to be able to share some of the insights and what they're looking for, for entry or mid-level positions, but then also leveraging the actual tools that they're focused on on a day-to-day basis to better prepare students. Excellent. You know, and speaking of some of those tools, I'm going to go back to Don for a moment here in healthcare. We see applicants that apply not just for clinical jobs or for non-clinical jobs, and there is rapidly evolving technology both from a patient care standpoint and a non-clinical standpoint. What do you see, Don, in the way of applicants that are coming that could, what other additional or enhanced educational resources could be applied or made available to healthcare applicants to be better trained and ready to hit the ground running at Kaiser? Yeah, I I think, you know, schools have been doing a great job about incorporating technology and instruction and stuff. But the reality is, is we also have to know how to function as humans with technology. And that's a, and it gets to the soft skills piece, but over, I think it was about 50% of our primary care visits were done virtually. And that changes how healthcare is done and how you have to be able to really emphasize from an empathy perspective when you engage with patients so that it doesn't come off cold. When's it appropriate to use technology to communicate something with a patient and when's not? Because there are certain diagnoses and certain things that you may have to share with someone that isn't okay to say virtually, that they really do need a support system and people to look them in the eye at that time. And so knowing those that having the empathy, the soft skills, and being able to realize how do I leverage technology instead of hide behind technology, I think is one of the things that would be beneficial for people to do and to know. Um, I think as we shift more and more to technology um, and healthcare service delivery, that's going to be critical to somebody being successful and having technology be successful in healthcare because it is just the tool Um, At the end of the day, we have to look a patient in the eyes and we have to be able to make sure they understand what's going on, have the ability to ask questions, have a, you know, a conversation because so much that people forget as humans, majority of what we do is nonverbal, right? And so even when I listen to presentations that are done virtually, sometimes I feel like the person forgets there's people listening. And so Having that skill set to know when to stop and when to ask, you know, you know, if there are questions, and be able to engage people effectively with technology is going to be critical. I couldn't agree more. So, Jill, before we leave technology, we can't ignore the green revolution and the need to create more sustainable, renewable energy sources, which are totally, not totally, but have, are, are still fairly new to the industry, I think. So how are you seeing or what resources do you see need to be made available to bring, again, ready-made, hit-the-ground employees to help Edison take the next steps in that regard? 
So while definitely a big focus for us is people who have the science and technology background, you know, you need to still understand the fundamentals of physics and thermodynamics. Those are not changing and that's not going to change as we go forward into a clean energy future. But I absolutely agree with my colleagues that it's that soft skill that often is, is the missing link. And so I'm an engineer and it used to be Uh, when I was coming out of engineering school, that engineers were sort of excused for not being good at writing or not being good at presenting. And if you were good at either one of those, that was certainly a way to differentiate yourself. I would say that's no longer acceptable. You can't just be good at coding or just be good at equations. You have to be able to communicate those to people who didn't do four years of engineering school, especially as we're going to get our customers to transition to electric vehicles, to move into heat pumps, to try all this new technology, we have to be able to talk to people in a way they can understand. And that means that every single person we hire, even if it's a PhD statistician, one of the things we evaluate people on is how strong are their communication skills. Boy, I think what we're hearing is that there's far more than just technology needs that make you a successful employee these days. I wish I could bring my teenagers who are their iPad, iPhone addicts. Here to hear all that, but let's transition from the technical skills and training aspects. I think you know there's clearly a great interest in uh, how employers must address social determinants for success, and certainly in Southern California, we face challenges here that are unique to any place in the country, if not the world. You know, we talk about the high cost of housing. I like to refer to it as the unaffordable cost of housing here in Southern California. I can tell you, I'm sure that our panelists experience the same things as many of you do, as we recruit physicians or nurses or non-technical, non-clinical people to Methodist Hospital, I openly, at the front of any conversation, talk about recognize the cost of living from where you're coming from. It's different than anywhere else. And oftentimes we have people beg off and not come because they recognize they can't have the same lifestyle that they've had in other less costly environments. So with that, Lindsay, what opportunities do you see or what strategies can Southern California employers and educators undertake to better address some of those barriers to, uh, to working here? Yeah, great question. I think one of the big things specifically within the tech industry that we're really noticing is that companies are starting to move towards even like a remote workforce. And so while for Southern California and having physical locations like you all do, it's a little bit different in the sense that they are able to have talent that might not be here locally in Los Angeles. I think specifically here in Los Angeles, some of the things that we're doing to help even prepare, again, students to get in the door is being able to do partnerships with with ride-sharing companies to make sure that they're getting to job interviews and being able to show up for the first couple of weeks. There was recently a partnership with Lyft that was announced of being able to help young people make sure that they're able to, coming out of the re-entry population, of being able to get to those jobs and get to those internships. So I think that there are strides within companies that are happening, but I think it's really being able to look at the people and look at, you know, what are the different incentives and opportunities that a company can provide, whether it is being able to increase wages, whether it's being able to provide opportunities for employees to be able to have different styles of working. And that might mean being able to work remotely um, with teams as we kind of shift and are able to have more technology tools at our fingertips. So with that, what we're fortunate about today with our panelists is, in addition to Lindsay, we have representatives from three region-wide employers that don't have one home base or one particular place. Well, you know, Parsons and Edison and Kaiser are located across the entire region. So not that we're going to solve the housing crisis today, 
but let's, let's appeal to the ears of some of the electeds that might be in the audience. I would ask each of you, how, how is Parsons, let's start with Abigail, addressing tr the traffic concerns here and transportation needs? I will tell you, you know, uh, you, we recognize that people can often not afford to live anywhere near where they work and they're commuting, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 miles to work every day, spending untold hours in your car. So Abigail, what strategies does Parsons have or for take the opportunity to speak to some of those in the audience that might be able to, to affect change? What do you see as the needs that can be uh, changed to make it a little more affordable to live closer to your workplace? So as a technology company, and you know, we, we specialize in intelligence, defense, and critical infrastructure, we take that as a very personal in terms of the technology. And we have moved to more teleconferencing and telecommuting. I have an office with my name on it in the Pasadena office of Parsons. However, my office, I would say 95% of the time, is when I'm in California, I am at home. So I get up, I take my daughter to work, I go to the gym, I come back. I do start at 5 a.m. though, sometimes, most days, because my role is national, and so my colleagues on the East Coast, they're up at 5, so they're calling uh, because, you know, where in the world is Abigail? They don't know. They're just calling because they're up. So phone calls uh, using WebEx and teleconference, using Microsoft Office and, and our Teams to host our meetings and for all of us to look at the same presentation or document if we're reviewing, editing, providing comments uh, or developing, using Google Docs where we can check out our document and edit it. So some people that I that I work with currently, my team members, I've never met. And, you know, I'll ask, where do you sit? You know, oh, well, I'm in Charlotte or I'm in Virginia or, you know, I'm in Missouri. So it's neat because we can spend more time, right? Instead of commuting or coming and going, we're spending a lot more time doing our work and having conversation. And so I feel like my life Though it's busy, it's peace, more peaceful, right? It's peaceful because I don't have to commute. I don't have to travel. I don't have to put in the travel time. Yes, once a month like today, I'll get on a flight somewhere and I'll be gone for three, four days, but then I'll be back, right? So my only impact to the area is either my drive to and from LAX or my, you know, Lyft or Uber drive or if I take the flyaway. So I think that the more that we can think about like, yes, I agree that some information, not just a diagnosis, needs to be face-to-face, -face and we want to read the room and so forth, specifically with our clients. There's a lot of internal communications that can happen remotely and in coordination, and I don't think that the quality suffers because your team is invested. So I think that if we can think about that, sometimes it's hard for people to adapt, whether it's, you know, there are people who don't want to take on a new technology or a new application, whether it's on their phone or on their desktop or laptop, that the quicker that you can learn and adapt to something like Teams or WebEx on, online and not be afraid of it, but embrace it and take a training and ask questions, the better equipped you'll be and more agile that you'll be to adapt to what's coming and what's already here. Joe, what thoughts of Edison apply to these challenges? 
So our situation is a little different because we manage a physical infrastructure that goes across 50,000 square miles. Through many of the office and back office jobs, we are adopting a lot more of the digital and telecommuting opportunities. We still need physical presence in our locations all across the service area. Uh, So that presents a lot of challenges that you mentioned. For example, we have a service center in Santa Monica. It's very difficult for us to recruit people into that service area because it's very expensive to live near, obviously, and we all know how hard it is to get in and out of that area if you don't live there. Plus you have to surf. I suppose. (laughs) But we need people there because we have new services, you have repairs, you have operations of physical infrastructure that's there. Uh, We we also operate the utility that's on Catalina Island, which is another challenging and expensive place to live. But so what we do in that case is we have a specific differential for people's salary, including people who are represented, you know, working in the field all the way to the management Uh, recognizing that it's a $50 ferry ticket each way if you need to get on and off the island, which you would need to do if you wanted to see a dentist or go to the doctor or, you know, all of the normal things that we might take for granted here that we could just drive to. We need people to live on that island to manage that utility. So we, we do look at each case and we try to make sure that we are listening all of the time to the feedback from our employees. Uh, So we do a pulse survey, which I'm sure many of my colleagues here do as well where we are asking for input from our employees on what are we doing well, how can we do better, what makes your job hard, you know, how can we address it, and we try to take feedback from the employees to customize their experience across all of our 50,000 square miles. Very good. Don, how about Kaiser? Traffic and housing. Well, I think it's a talent inhibitor for us to attract and retain quality people and you see that in our operations uh, you start to get and it's not unique to Kaiser I think a lot of healthcare providers and mental health providers are there telepsychiatry telemedicine that allows us to leverage licensed professionals and providers even outside of the state of California because they don't want to come here because of the cost of living they see that they can have a different quality of life in another place we experience on a, on a micro level here in southern California the highest turnover we have happens at Los Angeles Medical Center. Why? Everybody wants to be in the city, right? No. We have people who take the job, but they want to have a house. They have to raise a family. They have all these things that they want to do that's part of their life's dream. And so they take that job, and then what we see is this trend. They turn over. They don't leave us. They just move to a medical center closer to their home. So they'll go from the LAMC one to Baldwin Park or to Fontana or to Riverside or to Santa Clarita. And so that, that constant churn is a drain on the business, but it also gets to the continuity of care. The, the biggest piece that I think is a reason to solve the housing issue from a talent perspective is all's good when all is good. But most recently, I'll use the example of the wildfires. It becomes very apparent how many people commute in to the Los Angeles Medical Center and the West LA Medical Center when you have a fire that shuts down freeways. And if any policymaker in here thinks that it's okay for healthcare to have to struggle with talent because they're commuting from an area, look no further than just a simple wildfire. And I don't want to simplify it, but when you think about the terms of disasters that could prohibit people from commuting to work, that's a very real one. And we saw an impact to over 1,000 employees that come from Antelope Valley, Panorama City, 
our Antelope Valley, I'm sorry, uh, the uh, Santa Clarita area to LAMC who wouldn't be able to get to work when those freeways were down. That's, that's a huge piece for business. And I know we're not alone. All you have to do is watch that traffic pattern. Traffic patterns. So along that way in transitioning, let me, uh, we've talked about some innovative solutions for technology and for, and for addressing some social determinants. Let's, let's talk about the, uh, the generational issue of our time. Millennials. Catch the answer to the big millennial question when the panel responds next week in part two of this discussion around emerging workforce trends and in industry. The best way to make sure you don't miss it is to simply subscribe to the podcast. In addition to hearing the rest of this compelling conversation, next week you'll also hear from the audience as they ask the questions that are most important to them and their fields of focus. So stay tuned and see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear from you too. Leave us your thoughts and review and remember to rate us. Thanks for listening.